I'm Unique Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. And boy, is there a lot of news today, Jonathan. That is the one commodity which is not in short <laughs> supply. You know, all these Brexit supply chain issues. The one thing there is no supply problem here is news, news, news. I have been either at the keyboard or at the microphone or at my notebook for, I think it feels like 48 hours straight. Um this is the kind of stunt you pull normally, where you've got political instability. Yes, and I'm like, I was wondering, were you envious? Were you envious of our prime minister's resignations? You had to get one of your own. I'm just like, you wanted the focus. What what happened here? Well, you, you're stealing my uh, thunder, man. Your very um, eminent colleague uh, Amit Segal said, didn't he, that Boris Johnson was Britain's first Israeli prime minister? And <laughs> you know how how prophetic it was. The lack of shame that, now, that made him say that. It was the lack of shame that made him say it, which also made him Britain's first American president as well, if you think about Donald Trump. But uh, just prescient because, I, I mean, what is it? A matter of days after Naftali Bennett uh, did his, Boris Johnson did his. The manner of the departure, we should say, rather different. I mean, you and I talked last week about this very gracious handover and Naftali Bennett more or less volunteered this resignation. He, people weren't particularly expecting it. He was the one who said enough's enough. And then his hug with his successor. Not quite like that with Boris Johnson. Someone um, said that, you know, the what's going on in British politics right now is a little like the Titanic refusing to recognise the iceberg. You know, um, the, but the, the writing was on the wall really late Monday, where Boris Johnson lost not one, but two of his most senior ministers in quick succession. Normally, that means it's over. And just three years ago, mm -hmm. Theresa May was then Prime Minister. Just a couple of those warnings from colleagues, and she duly came out and tearfully said, I better resign. Not really Boris Johnson's style. Instead, he was going on in front of his colleagues MP saying I'm going on and planning to deliver and making plans and I'm going to give a big speech on the economy next week and as he was speaking every 10 minutes somebody calculated there were more a res another resignation was coming I mean it got to over 50 of his ministers as wow. I say normally one or two is a big deal 50 resigned and he's, you know, even the new ones he put in to replace the ones who'd gone before were telling him to go. So he had his finance minister, Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, the Baghdad-born Nadim Zahawi, who was put in as Chancellor and less than 24 hours later was writing to the Prime Minister saying, it's time you went. So it's been absolute scenes, as those who are much younger than me would say on social media <laughs> here. Um, but he has now finally, as you and I speak, said he will go, um, which is not quite the same as actually physically, you know, releasing his fingernails from the desk. That's what I was going to ask about, because is there still this sort of attempt to somehow stay on or that's it? It's done, finished, nothing else can happen here. It is Boris Johnson. Way, that's why I'm asking. That's why you're right to ask. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Again, normal person who gets up in front of the cameras and says, I'm resigning, you normally can take that to the bank. But in Boris Johnson's case, the fact that he wants to stay on till October as a caretaker mm. prime minister, there's either two, one of two different motivations going on there. One of them is a thing which is often underestimated in politicians, which is he's got an eye on the stats and knows if he goes now or next Tuesday, he will have served a shorter period of time in office 
than Theresa May, his predecessor, who is regarded as a byword for political failure. And he will be the guy who managed to stay on in Downing Street even less time than she did. He doesn't want to be there. If he can hold on till October, then suddenly he goes up the rankings and isn't at quite as brief a prime ministerial career as those others. So I think that's the charitable reading. Um, the uncharitable reading is that he's one of those people who thinks, look, as long as you're still on the playing field, you might win. You know, as long as the final whistle hasn't blown, you're still in with a shot. And it's mad, it's deranged and delusional, but he was sounding deranged and delusional as all this was unfolding. And there is this thought that just maybe he thinks something could come up. Amazing. I mean, you know, he came into power with all these opportunities, a large majority, a country that was torn, but still wanted to move forward and succeeded to what would you say through sheer hard work and uh, unique talents to just alienate everybody. What was like the final straw? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the final straw was that he had appointed uh, to the role of deputy chief whip. So one of the parliamentary figures, number two in that operation, a guy who has been accused left, right and centre of sexual misconduct. That wasn't the key thing, although people have enjoyed joking, saying the one thing none of us predicted was that Boris Johnson would be brought down by a sex scandal that wasn't his own. Um, but that's not the issue. It's rather that he said that he had had no idea this guy had this history. Nobody warned him, he said last mm -hmm. week. And he got colleagues to go out and say on the airwaves, no, the Prime Minister was never warned of this, had no specific warning. And eventually, the retired senior civil servant of the Foreign Office, the equivalent like Director General of the Foreign Ministry in Israel, comes forward and says, no, he really did have a specific warning. Um, and I'm not a political partisan figure, but he really was warned. And he put it in writing. And it was clear that yet again, Boris Johnson had lied. But the way to see that is as the last straw, there was a weight of straw on the camel's back before. And that relates really to the scandal known here as Partygate, um, the notion you know, if you want to make jokes about Britain, you would say, ha-ha, Prime Minister brought down by a tea party in Downing Street. How British? You know, that wasn't the issue. The issue was it was during lockdown, really tight rules on lockdown to the point where people could not hold the hands of their dying relatives in their final hours. It has emerged that there was partying going on regularly in Downing Street. He was running it like a frat house. They were partying around the clock be wheeling in suitcases of booze, and they were breaking all the lockdown rules that he had imposed on the country and that everyone else had followed, and he had lied about it. And so already his position was perilous, and I think a lot of his colleagues thought, if you do one more thing, it's going to be enough. And guess what? He did one more thing. It's amazing, because in this country, he's been compared to Netanyahu a lot. Uh, the one thing that hasn't happened here is that his Netanyahu's own party uh, turned against him. This is what happened in, in in the Johnson case. So that that is uh, that is pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, that's this for for Brits. I think that is the little bit of silver lining is that Republicans never turned on Donald Trump, even after the you know an attempted insurrection. The Likud didn't turn on Netanyahu, and they and the Conservatives have turned on mm -hmm. Boris Johnson. And under our system, it is the only way he could ever be got out is his own MPs, and. Look, on, on, so that's the silver lining. I mean, the cloud is that they these are the people 
who, when the Labour opposition and journalists like me have been writing for years about Boris Johnson's serial dishonesty, was telling us to calm down. It's not a problem. I don't recognise that picture. It's not true. He's wonderful. He's got the votes of the people. And week in, week out, we were saying, no, there is a problem here. And now they are saying it. So it's frustrating that it took them three years to get to this point. But yes, mm -hmm. it's better than the Israel or Washington Republican situation that in the, his own people finally blew the whistle. Well, our unique selling point still is a little bit about Israel. We should probably mention that uh, Boris Johnson always sort of defined himself as a, a passionate defender of Israel. He wrote, I think his, he wrote a column for Yedio Tachonot uh, recently, and he said, you know, a few issues are closer to my heart than protecting uh, Israelis from the menace of terrorism and anti-Semitic uh, incitement. He's always been considered, I think, Israelis kind of... I hope you're okay with me saying this, Jonathan. They like him. They like his style. They like the fact that he was very affectionate towards Israel. He came here many times. I think also he came here when he was mayor of London and then later. So they, they liked him. I'm sure they don't love the news, but I think we should probably mention that as well when we're uh, yeah, talking Yeah, but we're about talking about Israel, which is like the one country in the world that liked Trump. I mean, they, those polling numbers for Trump, the international polling, I think it was, you know, Russia We're impressed and Israel, by people with bizarre hair. What can I tell you? Yeah, it's a thing. These blonde guys, <laughs> these blonde, to me, loathsome populists, um, they have well, a weird market. pretty easy. We like the people who like us. Like, I don't know. Okay, never mind. <laughs> no, that's true. And I, and I really get that. Other than the fact that- Oh, he spent time in a kibbutz. I should mention that as well. Yeah, no, look, it's definitely true. And as mayor of London, he would mention that there was some, you know, very far back, he thought maybe there was some Jewish ancestry. There was some Turkish Muslim ancestry. You know, when he was mayor of London, he played the cosmopolitan guy. Um, and look, it's it's quite true. I always feel compelled to point out that the most pro-Israel speech ever delivered by a British prime minister to the Knesset was from a Labour prime minister, and it was Gordon Brown. Go back to that speech. It's just a hymn of devotion mm -hmm. to Israel. So they, you don't, you didn't need Boris Johnson if you wanted a pro-Israel prime minister of Britain. But I would say this, that he's if he's got an eye on his post-prime ministerial career, Boris Johnson, and I think he has, it's some of those international positions that mean he might get a bit of an audience. In his resignation speech, he mentioned Ukraine. He wants to be seen as the saviour of Ukraine, an early backer, uh, an early supplier of arms to Ukraine. And Israel is will, would certainly be in that list of places where he thinks, I reckon, he'll get a, you know, a warm reception. He might not get one in Sheffield or Manchester or Birmingham, but he might in Tel Aviv or Haifa or Jerusalem. Yeah, I can see. And, and while I wonder what my friend Jonathan Friedland will now write about, he might have a shortage. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm thinking of you I'm, today. I'm, I know. Will will no one think of the columnists? Spare a thought <laughs> for this endangered group. Um, he has kept us very busy. By the way, he might go back um, to being a columnist and then there's going to be a whole lot of competition. So again, spare a thought for columnists. I agree. Yeah, um, no, I, I mean, it's so mad because if you've been doing what I've been doing as long as I have, I was on stories with Boris Johnson where he was like another reporter standing next to me <laughs> with his notebook. And one day I'll tell you the story of when he turned up late and missed a story. and He, had <gasps> he to took get your notes? notes from my notebook. Yes, he did. Wow. That's yes, a good story. Did. So, a good story. The, and I'll, the, the full story of that is yet another reason why I'm not a huge fan. 
Um, but we'll save that for another day. Um, so that's what's, what's been going on in my life. Um, what's been going on in yours? Well, you know, we mentioned uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu now, of course, fiercely already in a fifth election race. But I don't want to talk too much about politics, Jonathan. I think we've been doing that for a very long time on this podcast. What I wanted to talk to you about is uh, specifically what is going on in a courtroom in Jerusalem, and that is Benjamin Netanyahu's trial, which is continuing all this while. This uh, case uh, that we're we're talking about his case uh, 1000, which Netanyahu is accused of improperly receiving lavish gifts in exchange for favors from billionaire businessmen Arnon Milchin and James Packer, and testifying for the prosecution, a key witness called Hadas Klein, who was the assistant to Milchin and the representative to Packer. Now, she gave a very, very long list of uh, basically the woman who kept tabs on all of this, right? Of all of the gifts, all of the uh, demands for gifts that went on for a few years up to a sum of 700,000 shekels. And these are really some um, amazing stories. I'll just give you a few of them for your uh, edification and enjoyment. So first of all, Netanyahu uh, had a penchant, it appears, for Kohiba 56, Cigars, I know, absolutely. I mean, cigar ignoramus, I don't know what this means, but probably very expensive ones. Uh, and he They would sound expensive, the, don't they? They sound expensive. Actually, she goes on to say in her testimony that he was, I believe, quite upset when they only found the Cohiba uh, 54. Uh, cigars. I hate it when that happens. I, I hate it when it happens too. It's terrible. It really, it just ruins your whole day. Yes, he was angered and he complained to Milchin about it as part of her testimony. Uh, but he would dip his cigars in Quanto uh, liquor and he had a pension for that. By the way, the cigars and the liquor all paid for by Arnon Milchin. There is a, a, also a moment in which, of course, there is jewelry given to Sarnatanyao in pink champagne. Uh, which she seemed to like all of this in Hadas Klein's testimony. There's also a moment in which we have to say that Netanyahu, as in def his defense, saying that they are friends for many years and there, there was a reciprocity in the gift giving. Uh, so Hadas Klein has asked what uh, was the gift that was given to Arnon Milchin by the Netanyahu's, and she answers there was a keychain with the uh, symbol of the Israeli state and a toy from a toy store. Those were the gifts. So, so uh, a little tiny bit of imbalance there. A little bit. In the bit. value, in the cash value. Mm -hmm. Cohiba cigars dipped in Cointreau or a keychain. I mean, that is fantastic. Why would anyone dip the cigar? I just, I don't get that. Anyway, uh, but yes. Yeah, so, of course, according to the indictment, we should also say the other part of the story is that Netanyahu approached senior members of the U.S. government with a request to extend Milchin's uh, permit to reside in the United States. That's also part of the indictment. This is a whole long case. How will it affect the election? we are now in, um, I would say in the people's court, people have already made up their mind pro Netanyahu or anti, but of course there are three judges and they will be the ones who, who decide Netanyahu's fate in this case as in the other cases. So I, I get the thing about people have already made up their mind, but it, given that he's a big part of his base mm -hmm. is made up of people who are not affluent, who, you know, who are often struggling to get by, how does that kind of core liquid voter react to the idea this guy was dipping expensive cigars in liqueur and getting these gifts from other people does does there is there any point at which people think this guy is not like us 
You know, there's a, I'm going to answer it with a completely different story of something you did not ask. But I remember I was in the uh, documenting the evangelical community and their support of Donald Trump and asked them, you know, you, you talk about family values and things like that. He is not exactly the uh, upholder of these values. Why do you support him? And they said to me that uh, God works in mysterious ways and chooses his representatives and they're always flawed. I think in a way you'd get the same response from Netanyahu supporters in the Likud. Maybe he's flawed. Maybe he likes, you know, the liquor or maybe he likes these things bought for him. We don't care. They still think that, that he is the best leader for Israel. They think that a lot of these cases are fabricated. And they say more than that. You are putting a prime minister on trial because he received a few cigars from a, a billionaire. This is the reason why this, a former prime minister, by the way, this is the reason why he's put on trial. So again, you can find a lot of, of reasoning and rationale here behind what's happening in the courtroom. And in terms of the judges, because they're obviously the ones who've got to decide, mm -hmm. to what extent do they become wary of of letting the normal legal route uh, play out because they suddenly think this this is interfering in an election. This is now much more difficult than dealing just with a former prime minister. This is a candidate to be the next prime minister. Right. Well, I, I, I don't seem to see any signs like these judges aren't completely fair and balanced. And I think anyone else would, would be hard-pressed to find any of these uh, signs. Netanyahu always thinking that he if he stands trial as a prime minister, he again, might be able to change the balance here. And of course, coming to as a prime minister and sitting in court is a different uh, matter. But again, this will continue probably in the same pace, which is in Israeli judicial system quite slow all throughout the election season and after. Time, I think, Yonit, for our special guest on this week's Unholy. And he is somebody who can tell us all about the big name visitor, namely the President of the United States, who is due to visit Israel next week. Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times and political analyst for MSNBC. He's the author of seven books. The latest is called The Divider about Donald Trump, which he wrote with his wonderful wife, Susan Glazer, and that comes out uh, in September. Uh, he's also someone who's been uh, in this business covering five presidents and never, ever ceases to be a true mensch. Peter, we're <laughs> so glad to have you on Unholy. I'm delighted to be with you guys. I'm really looking forward to actually coming back to Israel and seeing you soon, hopefully in person. Yeah, you got we the hope so too. You got the Mensch Award right off the bat there. <laughs> you that. I take that as a huge compliment. Normally we give that out at the end, but yeah. you got it right at the start. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And he knows why. Um, we're, uh, we're actually looking forward to uh, seeing you again here, Peter, because you're uh, coming, you're accompanying President Biden in his visit to the region, Israel, Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's so much going on back home, gas prices and inflation raging, uh, midterms looming. Why does he need this visit and why does he need it now? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and there's a lot of reasons why maybe it's not the best timing. Certainly, obviously, Israel is in the midst of a political, you know, flux. And, and you, you know, normally better to go to a country that has a prime minister and a functional government. But then if you waited until that, you might not be able to come at all, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not just true in Israel anymore. Uh, it may be true here in Washington. But um, yeah, I think uh, there are a number of reasons. One, uh, I think he wants to demonstrate that he hasn't completely shifted away from the Middle East, even as he's pivoting toward Asia. Two, Saudi in particular is important right now in the midst of the Russia war in Ukraine to make friends with Saudi again after the rupture over the Khashoggi 
uh, killing, but they're willing to put that aside because obviously energy now is uh, is such a big, big, big problem for uh, the markets and for the United States. Uh, and I think that uh, this will be his last big foreign trip before heading into the midterm campaign season when he's going to be out on the domestic road a lot. So he's trying to, to wrap up sort of uh, uh, a lot of the international issues at a time when attention here will very quickly turn to our own domestic dysfunction. Talking of domestic, it used to be that a visit to Israel was partly a domestic politics move for an American president or an American presidential candidate. There were domestic constituencies back home that kind of wanted or needed you to go to Israel and say the various things that you have to say. Is that still the case? I mean, does, is, there, is there domestic politics in Biden going to Israel? Yes, but not in the same way. You know, it, 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 it has become such um, a more partisan issue than it used to be, right? I mean, it used to be something that Democrats and Republicans more or less had fairly similar positioning on. And today, Israel is seen as such a Republican-Democrat divide. Republicans claim ownership, in effect, of support for Israel, and everybody else isn't uh, seen as sufficiently strong. And Biden would like to say that's not true, but he also is not taking the same position that Trump did, obviously. He's, he's you know, he wants to restore the notion of America as kind of an, you know, quote, honest broker, unquote, if you can call it that, uh, while emphasizing that he does support Israel's security and that he has been a friend to Israel for many, many years. He's known, he will tell you, he's known every Israeli prime minister going back to Golda Meir, right? So he is a longstanding record in the region. But uh, the domestic consequences are a little different today. I mean, I don't think that, you know, his base is not as fired up in the pro-Israeli camp as the Republican base is, right? And in fact, you could argue there's something of a risk on his left, which is you know, the more, the louder voices in his party that are on the left and very anti-Israeli policy, let's say, not anti-Israel necessarily, uh, although maybe some are. Um, Biden has been basically willing to say to the left of his party, hey, guys, that's not who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm Joe Biden. I've been around for a long time. I'm going to do it the way I do it. You know, obviously, so you mentioned this, and it's hard not to notice that Israel is in the middle of yet another uh, cycle. Just to sort of demonstrate how accelerated the news cycle is here, I think a month ago, the conversation, I just read an Israeli newspaper from a month ago, and it said, uh, Prime Minister Bennett is going to, you know, the points he's going to get from this photo op with um, the president. Well, it's not going to be Prime Minister Bennett anymore. It's Prime Minister Lapine. It's yeah. kind of hard to uh, keep up with this. What kind of relationship they do they even have? I mean, they, I don't think they really know each other that well. I don't know of one specifically. Mm -hmm. I'm, sh I'm sure they've met because they're both the kind of guys who go out and meet everybody. Um, so I'm sure there's been some occasion when they, you know, when Yair Lapid has come here to Washington in the past, he, he's made the rounds. And I, I, it would be surprising if he hadn't found some way to meet with President Biden in a previous iteration. Um, but it's going to be an interesting question, you know, how they get along. I mean, you know, you know, Lapid much more better than I do. I mean, you know, he positions himself more centrist than than Naftali Bennett, obviously. That's sort of where Biden sees himself as well. So there is, at least in theory, the you know, the potential for a decent rapport there. Um, mm -hmm. But can he get anything? Could they actually get anything done with a caretaker government? Is a caretaker government able to actually make any kind of commitments of any sort? I'm not sure what President Biden wants to necessarily get out of the Israeli government at this point. I think he does want to reassure them about Iran, right? That's a big friction point between the government there and the government here. The talks seem to be, you know, pretty quickly fraying to the point where it may not be continuing anytime soon, in which case Israel and the United States are going to need to really think 
carefully about what the next step is. And I don't think Biden wants to be on a different page than Israel if he can help it when it comes to how to counter Iran in this next phase if the talks do fail. The big clash over Iran came with the previous prime minister before Bennett, namely Netanyahu. The impression we always had was there was no love lost between, I'm going to say, Obama and Biden and Netanyahu. They weren't fans of his. The business of a president visiting a country that's in the middle of choosing a new leader, conventionally is always it was kind of delicate and you mustn't do anything which looks as if you're favouring one side or the other. Tell me if I'm wrong, but my hunch is that Joe Biden wouldn't mind doing something that might help, or rather anyway, that something that doesn't help and possibly, you know, preferably even hurts Netanyahu. He's going to do what he can, surely, for whoever is opposing Netanyahu. And he's not going to do any favours for Netanyahu because there's no love lost. Is that hunch broadly right, do you think? I think broadly that there is no love loss. I think you're right. I think if I remember correctly, Biden as vice president came there in 2010, I think I may get the date wrong and felt very aggrieved when there was an announcement of of a settlement construction while he was there in the country, felt that that was an FU basically to him in the United States. Although I'm honestly, he was then the one trying to calm down Hillary Clinton and others back, including Obama back in Washington, who wanted to basically do something to retaliate in effect uh, because he was, you know, he, he was the one who was affronted, but also thought let's not go too far and in, in overreacting at the same time. He is going to see Netanyahu while he's there uh, as one does with the opposition leaders. That's a normal thing for a president to do in that sense. It's not out of the ordinary, but I think you're right. He won't go out of his way to help Netanyahu get back in power. If he could lend any support to Lapid and the coalition, uh, you know, he'll find a way to do it. What kind of expectations does the administration have to move forward at all uh, vis-a-vis the Palestinians with this kind of bizarre situation, which Israel's going to elections again, and there's a caretaker government that can't really do anything? Is it enough for them to appear just not being the Trump administration? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Nobody has any expectations that we're going to get back to any kind of serious conversation at this point on the Palestinian issue. President Biden will go to Bethlehem to meet with Mahmoud Abbas. That by itself is a big change. You remember, of course, that Trump... And Abbas stopped speaking, uh, I think, uh, after the first year of his term, after the embassy moved to Jerusalem, and they were at odds for the rest of the term. President Trump cut off aid to the Palestinians. He closed the office in Washington. He closed the consulate that was uh, serving the Palestinian community in Jerusalem. President Biden is reversing most of those things. He's, he's keeping the embassy in Jerusalem. He's not moving the embassy back to Tel Aviv, but he will, is, is talked about anyway, reopening a consulate, as you guys know that will be aimed specifically at uh, relations with the Palestinians. So I think what he wants to do by meeting with Abbas is sort of get back to regular order, is the way he would put it. That doesn't mean anybody thinks anything big is going to happen anytime soon. The, the leadership, obviously, on the Palestinian side is so calcified and, you know, seemingly incapable of making any kind of real serious effort at deals. And obviously on the Israeli side, it's uncertain. So, but I think it's just a matter of sort of saying, let's just, let's at least keep things sort of in a calm state rather than uh, keep inflaming things the way they were under Trump. So in terms of getting into the substance of it then, if they're not going to do much really on the traditional Israel-Palestine issue, Iran is obviously the the big thing. What, what's your read of that? And with, on, on particularly on Biden's ambition on Iran, does he think it's plausible to put that deal back together again, or the one that his administration or the Biden administration brokered that Trump tore up? Does he think that's 
you know coming back anytime soon or is the or, or is as i've sort of you know read here and there a kind of downgrading of the ambition because realistically they think it's just not going to be able to happen yeah i mean biden's negotiators like uh, rob malley uh you know are still holding out hope but i think that the hope is pretty faded here in washington i think the, the it's all but admitted that it's not going to happen again they won't say that i don't think i think they'll you know continue to publicly at least say that they hope to get there. But the reality is the deal does not seem to be coming together. And that really does raise a big question because I don't think Biden wants a war with Iran. I don't think he wants to use military force. I don't think he wants Israeli uh, government to use uh, military force, but he also doesn't want Iran to get a nuclear weapon. So what do you do about that? So this trip in some ways is a meeting of the anti-Iran coalition in the Middle East, right? He's going to meet with Israelis. He's going to meet with the Saudis. He's going to meet with the uh, the rest of the GCC, the Emiratis and the Bahrainis and so forth, who are all concerned about Iran and consult on basically what the next steps could be if these talks do break down. And I think that uh, part of his goal is to convince this anti-Iran coalition that he is one of them because there's a lot of suspicion that he's not, right? There's a lot of suspicion because he did want to redo this deal that he is too soft on Iran and he's too willing to go along with the mullahs. And I think that he's going to tell them, look, I'm, I'm just as tough as you guys are. I just wanted to give diplomacy a chance. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. Obviously, the whole world is going to be focusing on that handshake between him and uh, MBS, right? I mean, he's going to have to climb down that vow he gave during the campaign trail and said that uh, he's a pariah, that that MBS, that was the title he gave up. Uh, that's not an easy pivot to do. How are they planning to sort of play out this whole thing? Badly and awkwardly. I mean, you know, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I think that they just know it's going to be a, a, a shitstorm. Am I allowed to say that? It, he just know, they just okay. know it's going to be a crappy day for them. Jonathan right? says it all. He does. Time. Okay. Well, it's going to be a, it's going to be a crappy day for them. There's just no way to manage that and pretend that it's not. I mean, they're they're trying to say, look, we're not going to meet with the Saudis. We're going to meet with the GCC plus Egypt, Iraq, and and Jordan, it just happens to be in Saudi Arabia. Okay, fine. Does anybody think that that's credible? No. So they can pretend all they want. The, the handshake will be, you're right, you know, he called for Saudi Arabia to be a pariah. The pariah obviously mm-hmm. is over, you know, welcoming them back to uh, to the fold. How they try to find a way to say we still care about human rights, given this, is a good question, right? Will Biden make some reference at some point during the trip to Khashoggi or human rights more generally, will he say that you know it's not acceptable in the uh, in the in a civilized world to order the butchery and, and dismemberment of a critic, or will he simply not address it at all because it would be seen impolitic? I just can't imagine he's going to do this trip without something, some nod to that meeting with somebody, maybe meeting with somebody in the dissident slash human rights side of things, something to show that that he hasn't completely forgotten what he said during the campaign. But there's just no way around the fact that it's going to be a terrible day for them because they're, they're going to be accused, understandably, of hypocrisy and giving up the moral high ground that they had staked out. And in terms of why he has to do it, I mean, why he has to, in some ways, eat his words, is how much is that to do with Ukraine and the sudden need to get the world's oil taps turned on so that the world is not dependent on Russian oil and gas and therefore he is kind of on a begging mission saying to the Saudis, look, just increase production. Forget what I said before. We need you. Yeah. I mean, that's basically it. I mean, they're going to say, no, that's not it. And they're, they keep saying, well, this isn't about energy. This is not about oil. This is about a broader relationship, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But the thing that really is acute right now, of course, is oil and energy and the price of gas. And, you know, I just, 
was just driving out uh, here in Washington and the price of gas is over $5 here for many people. It's a, it's a big, big, big cost to American consumers at a time uh, when they're about to head to midterms. The price has come down slightly in the last week or so. There's a little bit of optimism in the White House. The uh, oil fell below $100 a barrel. They're paying a lot of attention to that. And so, of course, going to Saudi is about energy and they can say all they want about it not being so, but that's absolutely the case. If Russia is not going to be on the world markets, then you have to turn to the other big exporter and the other big exporter is Saudi Arabia. And you have to make a real politic choice, which is worse, you know, a country like Russia, which is invading its neighbor and causing thousands of death, or a country like Saudi Arabia, which is a totalitarian monarchy willing to dismember its critics, but is somewhat friendlier to us. And that's the, that's the <laughs> unpleasant reality that they're, that they're addressing here. I was going to say that's a lovely choice to make. But there is actually, isn't there a little bit more than oil really involved here? Because it is also saying, look, we have to warm up to Saudi Arabia because if we don't, then Russia will and China will. Yeah. And also we have to create this sort of situation of a regional cooperation that, that the Trump administration started and we want to extend to Saudi Arabia. I mean, there is a little bit more to it, no? There is. And obviously uh, the Yemen war is very important. Some members of the Biden administration in Saudi, they believe, has been mm-hmm. cooperative in trying to to, to get the ceasefire uh, to hold that's currently in place. Um, they give them credit for that. Saudi has always been an important partner in intelligence sharing on various threats in the region. So, yeah, I mean, we, there's a longstanding American reliance on Saudi for, for issues beyond just energy as well. No question about it. And you're right. They certainly do not want to shove Saudi Arabia into the Chinese orbit or especially the Russian orbit. And I think that that's, while I don't think that's going to happen, I think that's always the threat that they worry about. So it's, you know, the relationship with Saudi Arabia and countries like Saudi Arabia has always been fraught with this moral trade-off because Saudi didn't suddenly get to be autocratic and, and, and repressive with the Khashoggi killing. It was that way long before, but it just really was in their face in a way that they couldn't ignore because Khashoggi was not only you know, so prominent, but he lives here. He used to live here in the United States. He wrote for the Washington Post. It wasn't something they could just kind of shove onto the rug without paying attention to. But it's always been a moral trade-off. Who are you going to get in bed with? Well, you get in the bed with the ones who are your friends, even if they're pretty, uh, pretty ugly, if you look closely enough. I wonder how much, and you might have a sense of this, how much advance work has been done diplomatically by the White House and State Department ahead of this visit to make sure that he doesn't get spurned. I mean, I, I just wonder, you know, that can happen where people make requests of the Saudis and they say no. I mean, and what I've got particularly in my mind is is in some ways the domestic politics of this, which is they're looking at the same polling we're all looking at and might be thinking, this guy Biden is not going to be really around that long necessarily and the Congress is going to be in different hands come November probably. Why, why give him anything? Because we might have to be dealing with, you know, President Trump too in two years or, you know, a different Republican administration. You know, let's hold our breath here. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Uh, the, the White House has Brett McGurk there in Saudi Arabia, you know, working on that in advance of Biden's arrival to make sure that this is going to go smoothly, as you say. There is an expectation Although I don't believe it's, you know, it's not been announced. There's an expectation that Saudi and the rest of the OPEC plus nations will ramp up production starting in September beyond what they've already agreed to. That hasn't been formalized, but the hope is on the Biden administration that that's going to come through and that it will make a big difference in the fall when it matters the most. But you're right. Saudi has its own real policy calculations to make here. And I think you've seen them playing both sides, in effect, with the, the the investment in Jared Kushner's fund, for instance, $2 billion, 
of investment from a fund controlled by MBS that's going into the private equity venture that uh, that Jared Kushner is doing. So they are, in fact, watching the politics. They're very smart about the politics in Washington, probably as smart as any other country that has an embassy here. And I think they they're trying to make sure that they are positioned for a post Biden world, if that's what it comes to. I think you accompanied the Trump uh, visit there in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So safe to say not no, not going to be any sword dancing or anything like that. I assume we're not going to see that this time. I know orb, I think, you know, the, the, uh, the member of the, the Lord of the Rings orb. <laughs> kind of that orb. Yeah, the picture of everyone around the orb. Yeah, yeah that, no good, orb, good, I think. Uh, and I think, right. yeah, sword dancing would be a little a little gauche perhaps this time. Although I, I'm reminded of Rex Tillerson, who was the Secretary of State at the time, and he he did the sword dance with Trump in 2017, and everybody asked him afterwards, you were pretty good. He says, not my first sword dance. <laughs> <laughs> I still prefer the orb of evil, the which is, evil. which it really did look like something out of one of those um, out of those movies. I mean, just because we have you here, it would be criminal not to just ask you about the domestic politics, because Yoni and I are both in countries where there's been a leadership change. Um, I mean, uh, and, you know, both the leaders in Israel and here were mired in terrible poll ratings for a long time. Biden, it's the same. I mean, what's your reading of his prospects? Forget the Saudi calculus. What's the Peter Baker calculus about how <laughs> Biden is doing and how he, if, if he can get out of the hole he's in? Yeah, it's there is something actually oddly uh, symmetrical right now between Jerusalem, London and Washington in terms of our politics. President Biden may not be officially a caretaker president, but it's certainly a dysfunctional moment where he's not able to get a lot done. Uh, and it's very frustrating. And the White House is just very frustrated because a lot of the things that they, you know, they're holding him down are things that are sort of beyond his immediate control. It's not like you can snap your finger and make gas prices go down. Um, you can't, you know, inflation is awfully hard. It's, it's, it's something that is more in the re- range of the Federal Reserve rather than the president. And in fact, as the Federal Reserve begins to increase interest rates, there's fear that that will have the impact of creating a recession. That's something obviously Biden doesn't want. So it's a very tumultuous time here as it is in London and Jerusalem. The, the comparison that the Biden would rather make is Macron and France looking at his recent election saying, okay, see, there's an example where a, a leader, nobody likes the leader, but they still reelect him anyway because they think the other guys are too crazy to, to return to power. That's the theory of the case right now in the White House. Yeah, okay, people aren't happy with Biden. It's not that they dislike Biden personally. They still like him. They're just disappointed because of inflation and on in general, because on the left, they're disappointed they didn't get more out of his Build Back Better program and, and, and more liberal programs that he would like. They're upset because of Roe v. Wade being overturned, which obviously isn't something he did, but it has contributed to the sour mood. But when push comes to shove, we, the White House, believe that we can make the contrast with the other side and say, okay, you may not like us, but the other side is even wackier, crazier, and more offensive in some way. And so they hold out hope that they can at least hold on to the Senate. I don't think they have much realistic hope of holding on the House, even though they might say they do and that they can turn things around. And history shows that you can lose a midterm election pretty badly and still win re-election. That happened for Bill Clinton. That happened for Barack Obama. Both of them lost uh, uh, pretty badly in their midterms and came back and won again. So that's what they're counting on at the moment. Will you run again, Peter? You know, if you ask that question in the White House, the answer is yes, absolutely yes. And they will say it on the record and off the record. I just have a hard time believing it, but we'll see. Let's just be realistic. He is 79. Uh, if he runs for re-election, that would mean he would be 86 at the end of a second term, 
We've never seen a president who's 86. It's not something America has had. Ronald Reagan, when he left office, was 78. So Biden is already older than Reagan was at his oldest. And Reagan was the oldest president up until that point. And I think that uh, there's a lot of frustration among Democrats, not just because of age, but because of the sense that Biden is, is not delivering in the way that they want. Having said that, if Trump really does run again, which seems very likely, Biden's argument is I'm the one guy who beat Trump and none of these other guys can do it. So don't take a chance on somebody else. Stick with me. And that may work. That could work. Trump is the one unifying thing for Democrats and Democratic leaning independents. Everything else right now divides them. And Biden may be able to make that argument. And there is just nobody clearly waiting in the wings who's the obvious next person. Kamala Harris has not done it. She may be able to do it at some point. But right now in Washington, she is not seen as the heir apparent. And nobody else is out there with the kind of Barack Obama, Bill Clinton pizzazz saying, ah, oh, that guy, that guy could is a plausible president. We could see him winning. So it seems weird to say that he might run for re-election given everything, but he might. But uh, we don't really know the answer because, of course, he's going to say he's going to run right up until the moment he doesn't if he weren't, because the minute he says he's not going to run, he's a lame duck. So it's in his interest to say he's going to run, even if that doesn't really happen. What, what do you think in terms of his own, as it were, psychology? Do you think he wants to run again? Yes. Joe Biden always wants to run again. Uh, and and I, I interviewed him once, I remember in 2009, just before he was sworn in as vice president. And he said, this is the capstone to my career. This is the, you know, this being vice president is going to be the, my final act in effect. And within hours, I got a call from the staff saying, whatever you do, don't quote him saying that. You know, in other words, they didn't want to lock him into the idea that he might not run again, because in fact, he did end up running again. He wanted to run in 2016. He didn't. He did obviously run in 2020. I think he always thinks he can run and win because he has this preternatural belief in himself, which I guess at high levels of politics, you have to have. What he has said, I think, is it will be up to Jill Biden, his wife, to tell him, okay, that's enough. You know, if she says to him, it's time to retire, you know, you, you've started to lose a, a step or you may lose a step or maybe this isn't good for your, for your health to be in, in this kind of stressful job in your 80s, she's the one person who might talk him out of it. Peter, thank you so much for talking to us. It was such a pleasure. We will find very uh, new and uh, original excuses to bring you on again. <laughs> I would love to come on anytime. You guys are the best. Thank, thank you. you. Really, so really much, been Peter. good to have you on. Thank you, guys. Take care. Fantastic to have Peter Baker on the podcast. It's even nicer to know that he's a listener. But what a... Um, brilliant observer of the Washington political scene, but of course knows so much about what's going on in Israel, the wider Middle East. So an excellent guest to have on Unholy. Indeed. I mean, covered five presidents from Clinton to Biden. Peter was actually the uh, bureau chief in Israel for a very short period of time. Then he was called back to report on Trump and he had brilliant reporting on that as well. And we were really, I think it was really great to hear him uh, today. Unholy. There is a whole little fraternity of ex-Jerusalem correspondents who then end up as White House correspondents, and they are uniquely well-placed um, to describe exactly the dynamics we wanted to get into with him. So that was excellent. Now, it is time to hand out some awards. Um, I was going to do a little mention en route to the our Mench Award. I, I just thought we should mention, because it's a, it's a significant event that happened, the United States conducted its own investigation into the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh, the Al Jazeera journalist who 
was shot dead while reporting in the West Bank not so long ago. The United States investigation says the exact source of the bullet is undetectable, but they do point the finger and say the likely source of that bullet was Israel. I don't know what you think. It just seems to me this is one of these stories that isn't going away. And I wonder if Israel, Israeli policymakers, Israel advocates have sort of underestimated the power of this story. I do remember Rachel Corrie, the American volunteer peace activist who was killed by an Israeli bulldozer. And at the time, I'm not sure Israeli authorities realised how long her story and memory would live on. And I just have a feeling this one could, this the case of Shirin Abu Akhla could can be continued to be brought up for even longer, given her huge following around the Arab world and the fact that, the, you know, she's uh, partly an American citizen as well. You have the Americans involved. He just does seem to be present. Yeah, I, I think that it lives on. I'm not sure that Israel underestimated it. I'm not sure that Israel had a lot of action here that it could have uh, done. If I'm not mistaken, the statement uh, from the administration is also the shooting, if it was from the Israeli side, wasn't a deliberate attempt to uh, kill her. As many have said after this uh, happened, we talked about this, Jonathan, on the program. It, it, it felt like it didn't really matter what the truth is. And again, here it's inconclusive, but it doesn't really matter. Every side had their own sort of narrative coalescing the first few minutes after this happened. At the end of the day, this is a tragedy. And again, Again, and Israel is caught trying to explain it. I'm, I'm not sure everyone is is listening. Yes, I think that's what I meant about the not not um, being fully prepared for it was was not the action itself. I'm not talking about that episode, although significant that the Americans are pointing their finger, albeit inconclusively, in Israel's direction. I meant more the explaining the narrative piece of it that you mm-hmm. described. Relatedly, because we are talking about um, journalists who cover the conflict, this is going to be my choice for Menchuward. The Associated Press has reopened its bureau in Gaza after its offices were destroyed in an Israeli airstrike um, last year. Uh, it's over a year since that building uh, was destroyed. The And so now, you know, the AP senior brass were all there to announce that the bureau was reopening. Look, whatever view you take on the circumstances of how that happened, and, you know, you'll remember that Israel said at the time that they believed there were Hamas fighters in the building. AP says there's still been no evidence of that. In their statement, AP says the Israeli government claimed Hamas had been operating inside the building. AP has repeatedly pressed for any evidence to be made public, but none has been provided. Whatever view you take on that, journalists and journalism needs to happen. It needs to happen in places of conflict. And so we wish... Good luck to the journalists doing that difficult job, the AP journalists reporting the news from Gaza. So my own nomination anyway for <laughs> Mensch of the Week, uh, I'm going to mention them. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I agree that journalism has to happen and has to happen uh, even in dangerous uh, places. In this case, uh, the building was attacked, as Israel said, because of Hamas infrastructure in the building. I think the problem, again, we're always talking about the gap between what really happened and how it's presented. I think here what the problem was, and this is during Operation, uh, what happened during Operation Guardian of the Walls, that someone of the in the IDF spokesperson's office put on this building being targeted and kind of even being kind of gloating that the the building has been targeted, that 
created a lot of problems for Israel. I think that was a mistake. But obviously, I think we both agree that the fact that there are journalists operating there and reporting, Hamas is much less tolerant of these things than Israel is. But I think it's important that they uh, came back and that they're doing their important work from there. Are we on to the Chutzpah Awards? We are, and that's all you. And I don't mean chutzpah's be... all you. I don't mean chutzpah's all you, Yoni. <laughs> it did sound a little You're bit like chutzpah. that. what you it were saying, like Jonathan. You're all chutzpah. Bit. No, the, no, the choice of nominee. I'm sure it nominee. sounded better in your head, Jonathan. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> this might be complimenting your story. Uh, ben and Jerry's. Uh, ben and Jerry's uh, deciding to sue its parent company, Unilever, because Unilever decided to sell its business interests in Israel to Avi Zinger, who currently holds the Israeli license of Ben & Jerry's, this means that it might pave the way to resume sales of Ben & Jerry's ice cream in the uh, settlements in the West Bank. I'll remind you that uh, they both uh, decided, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, who are Ben & Jerry's, decided after the flare-up we just mentioned last year that they selling the ice cream, as they called it, is inconsistent with their values when they're selling it in the occupied Palestinian territories. Now, um, two things I would mention. One is that that interview, a bit disastrous for them both, I would imagine, when they were asked, why then do you continue to sell your ice cream to states in the uh, parts of the United States that are uh, have anti-abortion laws? This becoming more relevant today, by the way. That doesn't uh, really sit well with your um, uh, worldview. Maybe that's a little bit disingenuous. So they said they hadn't thought that through. And of course, this is a company that works for profit, so they will continue to sell in China or Russia or anywhere else. But Israel is something that they would target. I kind of like to call it the Israel obsession syndrome, uh, if we thought iOS was actually an operation system. But so this is what it seems like to me. I'll also remind you, just because it's fun, their tweet from, uh, I think it was February, against the Biden administration intervening in Ukraine. Remember that? They wrote, you cannot simultaneously prevent and prepare for war. We call on President Biden to de-escalate tensions. You are an ice cream company. Make ice cream. I finished my <laughs> rant. No, it's a good one. I have a vague memory. And I don't know if this is right, that Ben and Jerry's maybe the you'll remember, maybe the first entity to have won both Chutzpah and Mensch on our show. Because didn't I did I once nominate them for Mensch because I liked the fact that they made the distinction and said we're not selling in the West Bank, but we will sell in Israel itself. And I think I said for that, maybe they only got a mention. Anyway, I was wondering if they'd become our first double it's, award recipient. It's completely possible that I would make someone the Chutzpah Award nominee and you'd make them the Mensch Award. I mean, this is completely, completely in sync with us, it, I'm sure. It is. it is possible, but maybe a year separated the two awards. But nevertheless, <laughs> amazing. Notice I didn't even suggest Boris Johnson for the Chutzpah. Don't kick a man when he's down. On the other hand, when else can you kick him? <laughs> so if follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, on Facebook, we're Unholy Podcast. And I've got to say, uh, lots of you have been uh, writing on there. And lots of you have been saying very nice things about the book that I've written, The Escape Artist. And I want to thank all of you who have been kind enough to buy the book or read it. That is very, very good of you. And you have some other thank yous, Yonita. I always do. Thank you. Big thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Atik, and Irad Eshel for original music. We shall meet next week. Try to go easy on the political drama on your end, okay? That's our <laughs> ticket. So, uh, you know, just make an effort. Thanks a lot, Yoni. See you next week. See you.